This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Idea City Podcast. For more information or to watch talks online, go to ideacity.ca or check out the Idea City channel on YouTube. Hello, and welcome to Idea City on the Air. By the end of the next half hour, you'll be inspired and enlightened by the world's biggest ideas, innovations, and breakthroughs as you hear about them in talks from the planet's smartest people. Moses Nimer's three-day annual Idea City conference in Toronto has been called Canada's premier meeting of the minds, and we're glad to have your mind with us. In this episode of Idea City on the Air, documentarian Rick Beanstalk speaks about modern sex slavery and the human organ trade. Now, let's join Moses as he introduces Rick to the stage. speaker um, is is known most recently for a number of really startling documentaries that she produced. Uh, uh, one of them is about the modern sex slavery situation and the other has to do with the international trade in organs. There is an enormous worldwide demand for hearts and lungs and livers but especially for kidneys. This is Rick Beanstalk. Thanks, Joseph. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Hi, thank you. Thank you for that introduction. I'm sure none of you in this audience have ever seen uh, hardcore pornography, obviously. So I apologize for the uh, graphic language coming up. If any of you are easily offended or if there are children in the audience, I strongly suggest you shut your ears, meet, Casting agent Jim South. Yeah, the way the pay scale works is girl girl is the cheapest that you can get paid. A boy girl is probably a hundred more than a girl girl. A boy girl anal is a hundred more than a boy girl. And a double penetration is a hundred to hundred and fifty more than an anal. And a gangbang, of course, pays the most. Uh, I don't want to supply anybody to play a rabbi or a priest or a preacher or something, and that's me. But th- I think that, to me, that steps over the line. What was the best line in that clip? The best line is the last line, of course. It was so easy in this documentary to satisfy the stereotype of a pornographer, and I had my money shot, so to speak, with his laundry list of prices, but it's the last line that, aside from being hilarious, I thought, that turned Jim South from a cliché into a person. And I've been making investigative documentaries for around 20 years. For some reason, I'm drawn to the dark side, topics like porn, Ebola, sex trafficking, and the human organ trade, stories of exploitation, disease, sex, and death. It's a living. Uh, and, 
as I've gone around the world meeting an extraordinary variety of human beings and bringing their stories home with me for audiences, I always try to ask myself, who are these people really? And what are the circumstances that made them who they are? And what often surprises me is that it's in their throwaway lines or in the moments where they're not on topic that they're at their most revealing. Um, it wasn't about the ethics of porn. This was about the business of porn. Pornographers have always been the first to adopt every new technology and profit from it, from starting with film to video, DVD, CD-ROM, of course the internet, and I don't even want to imagine what they're doing with virtual reality. But the film wasn't about morality or the dark underground of porn, and so I wasn't judging, and people really opened up. So we were at VCA, one of porn's uh, biggest studios in the San Fernando Valley, and I interviewed the owner about, how, about his business, and then he tells me that he wanted to sponsor a little league baseball team, just like all the other businesses in the area, but he couldn't. But for him, this wasn't about business, this was about community. So he created a generic company's name so that he could give them money. I thought that was revealing. Uh, I also spoke to some women in porn, women like uh, Julie Ashton. She told me, and many others, that she was drawn to the industry not only for the money, but for, in her words, the glamour. Paul Thomas is a porn director, but he sees himself first and foremost as a filmmaker, a storyteller. He actually told me he was the Sidney Pollock of porn. Pollock did out of Africa, and he did in and out of Africa. <laughs> so. so some were exhibitionists, some were weirdos, some were family men and women, but they took real pride in their work. And while of course I had to get all the porny footage that everybody wanted to see, getting a glimpse into the real people is I think sometimes much more revealing about the world that I'm exploring. And the next film I made was a very different kind of film called Sex Slaves, about the trafficking of women from Eastern Europe into the global sex trade. I'm going to show you some clips of uh, testimony of women who were trafficked. I had 20 to 25 men a day. They were given 15 minutes each. And if we went into overtime, people knocked on the wall for us to hurry up. I saw them beat up girls, so I tried to get out of there. I cut my wrists right here. They told me, you want to die, you'll get your wish. Look what they did to me. The cruelty inflicted on these women is actually soul-destroying. I talked to women who said they were drugged into submission, others who contracted AIDS, and yet others who told me the police use their services, the very people who are meant to protect them. And the pimps are monsters, but they are monsters being created and supported by a system of indifference and corruption. I imagine the traffickers to be evil sociopaths, but let me show you some traffickers we spoke to that we captured with hidden camera. It's the last line again that reveals more about the world of sex trafficking than anything else I had seen. In Moldova and Ukraine, at the grassroots level, it's everyday people very often women who are so desensitized by their greed and desperation that their moral compass is completely skewed. And if 
you want to understand something about the world of sex trafficking, you also have to understand the shattered social fabric of the countries where this trade is flourishing and where traffickers can operate with impunity. So again, it was easy to see what was amoral and pathological about them. But what was normal and surprising was more telling and I think even more chilling. The most recent film I made for HBO is called Tales from the Organ Trade, and it's about the black market in human organs. And after my experience making sex slaves, it was hard for me to think of the trafficking of human organs as anything but a story of simple exploitation. But it turns out it wasn't so simple. I'm going to show you the trailer. I can't find a donor in this country. I have to decide whether I'm willing to take on my soul the ethical burden of purchasing a kidney from somebody or choose to die. A surgeon accused of running an international organ trafficking ring. The victims were lured from other countries and had their kidneys stolen. I asked him what kind of compensation I would receive. He offered me $20,000. This particular situation helped me and saved my life. Is it my, is it my problem? It's an ethical committee's problem. It's not my problem. I'm doing my surgery. That's it. The black market idea scares me a little bit. This is an exploitation of the human condition that has to stop. You can't stay on this machine forever. It doesn't do what a kidney does. But this is what keeps me alive. Coming up after the break. There are horror stories like Hector, who sold his kidney only to discover that his remaining kidney is failing, which doesn't bode well for his recipient either. Welcome back to Idea City on the Air. You're listening to Rick Beanstalk speak about modern sex slavery and the human organ trade. Almost without exception, the media, the ethicists, the experts paint a black and white story of exploitation. And I shot uh, in eight countries across three continents over two years. And while the black market is, of course, by definition, a criminal enterprise, a more nuanced and complex picture emerged that forced me to question my own assumptions. This is a very unusual kind of crime because it's a world where normally law-abiding citizens staring death in the face turn to the black market for a life-saving kidney transplant. And normally law-abiding people staring poverty in the face, in the, in the face are driven to use their own bodies as, as ATM machines, and where the medical establishment, unequivocal in their condemnation, often watches uh, their patients die due to a shortage of organs. And meanwhile, the villains, these black market rogue surgeons, are saving lives and risking prison. And I asked myself why a trained uh, surgeon, a respected surgeon, it turns out a gifted surgeon, would do something like this. So I asked him, Problem is in the black market, kidneys move up the socioeconomic scale from poor people's bodies to affluent recipients. Of course, only the poorest of the poor sell their organs. But the people 
buying their kidneys were just as desperate as the people selling them. Many of the people I had met were middle-aged men who knew that they would not survive to make it to the top of the transplant list. Men like um, John, who uh, he's a civil engineer in the U.S. Um, Navy, and he needed a second kidney transplant and was told that it would take six years. He couldn't wait the six years, so he went to Pakistan. Or Henry, whose health was quickly deteriorating, so he went to Azerbaijan. With wait lists as uh, long as 10 years, it's no surprise that this would be a tempting proposition. Dialysis keeps people alive, but it's not living, it's existing. You have to spend hours on the machine every second day, and it's almost impossible to keep down a job or to have a normal life. And the tragic irony is that if uh, you're on dialysis for many years, it ravages the body to the point where you're no longer healthy enough for, for a transplant. So many people looking for a contraband kidney are off the list at home. And all of the people I spoke to hoped and believed that the money they were paying, sometimes upwards of $150,000, was helping the poor organ seller who was giving them life. None of them were flippant or cavalier about it. But if people have a choice between life or death, it was hard for me to judge them for choosing life. But what about the victims, the organ sellers? Well, in the Philippines, I was surprised that the kidney brokers didn't have to actively recruit donors. The Organ donors or organ sellers were flocking to them. They would see a neighbor who had some money and they'd find out that he sold their kidney. They sold their kidney to get that money and they wanted to do the same. I visited a village where hundreds of men had um, sold their kidney and everything I had read uh, and was told about this village before I went led me to believe they all had been coerced and exploited. And when I got there, they all assumed I was yet another Western journalist looking for the victim narrative. And they were right, in a way I was. But we hung around for a few days and talked to them without cameras, and then the real stories started coming out. And yes, virtually all of them uh, had been ripped off and shortchanged, but they revealed something beyond their victimhood. Uh, the money they get paid represents around two years of income if they're lucky enough to have a job, and many of them squandered their money, but others, like Noli, bought a house, sent his kids to school, and bought a means of transportation that provided him with a regular income. And it was hard for me to look at Noli and not think that he made the right choice for himself. Of course, there are horror stories like Hector, who sold his kidney only to discover that his remaining kidney is failing, which doesn't bode well for his recipient either. There are stories of harvesting organs from prisoners in China, of botched operations, of Indians being forced to sell their kidneys to pay back loans. All of the exploitation you'd expect to see in an illegal underground trade. But the lion's share of the kidney trade that I witnessed didn't play out like that. And back in North America, I questioned some ethicists and uh, transplant professionals and asked, why do you always characterize the organ sellers as being coerced? Because all of the ones that I met in Kosovo, Moldova, Ukraine, Turkey, Philippines, and even the States, because it happens there, they all seem to want to sell their kidneys. And the answer is, in ethics terms, they're coerced by their own poverty. It's an offer that they simply couldn't refuse. 
And as uncomfortable as I am with the idea of selling body parts, that struck me as paternalistic. People do lots of desperate things on account of poverty. Would they be better off selling their children or begging on the streets? So this film made me, made me question um, made me question my own ethical assumptions, as I said. Uh, uh, right now, we're only uh, meeting 10% of the demand for kidneys. 90% of the people who need transplants won't get one. And I couldn't help but ask myself, what would I do if my child or husband was in desperate need of a kidney? Or what would I do if, my, uh, if I couldn't feed my children? And I was presented with the opportunity of saving someone's life and getting paid for it. What would you do? Think about it. Well, I come back from filming in all these places and to my safe home and my beautiful family, and I'm grateful for all the tough choices I don't have to make, but I did learn from my experiences in the field to try not to judge, to keep in mind that the world is complex and messy, to be ready to question my own assumptions, and to always remain open, to try at least, to always remain open to a different ending. Thank you very much. I thank you. Thanks a lot, Moses. Rick. Yes. I came on this in a bit of research I was doing the other night. Tell me if it's accurate, but Gizmodo says that in 2012 the price of a heart was 119,000, a liver 157,000, a kidney. 262,000. And here's a disturbing entry. Eyeballs, $1,500. Well, I, I, they're talking about in North America, or are they talking about the black market? They weren't specific, yeah. and it goes back to 212. Right. The price of a black market kidney ranges anywhere from $30,000. I mean, you're not paying for the kidney, you're paying for the entire operation. Ranges from around $30,000 to around $150,000, uh, depending on the country and depending on. And that's US. That's US, it's not Euro. Yeah, it's US dollars. But, uh, but I mean, most of these operations, they do take place in legitimate hospitals and clinics, not, I mean, we've heard the apocryphal stories of people waking up in a bathtub full of ice with their kidney removed. It's just not how it happens. The organ sellers uh, are coached to talk to the ethics committees, to lie to the ethics committees at the hospitals and say that, that the recipient is a relative or they know them. And then they sign something that says they're giving altruistically. And if they were giving altruistically, it wouldn't be a problem. But because it's black market, they're not protected. But the act itself is not a bad act. That's what made it so interesting to explore. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Rosa. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Idea City on the Air. Catch Moses Neimer's Idea City Conference live every June in Toronto or on regularly scheduled radio and TV shows throughout the year. And find hundreds of talks online every day at ideacity.ca. For more information about Idea City, find us online at ideacity.ca, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or youtube.com slash ideacity. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.